All right, let's pray together. Lord, we strive every day to see your spirit grow our faith so that we might trust you more readily and openly and fully. Our faith is weak, our, our knees feeble, even our understanding is limited. But we know that with humility, if we come and open our hearts up and submit ourselves to your word, we know you'll grow our faith, you'll strengthen us. You'll use every means that you have provided because you love your people and you will come alongside and you'll minister and convict and challenge and you'll expose. That's the ministry you've had in our lives as your people. We, we cherish that work. And so we call upon you now to have your way in our hearts as we look to your word and see you exalted once again. Change us this day. Transform us. And cement new convictions in us, we pray, for your glory's sake. Amen. All right. Well, we have um, had just a wonderful week last weekend, but we're headed back into our study of Luke. So take your Bibles and let's go back to the Gospels. I know we've been in chapter 10 a long time. It's become a a lengthy study, but so much here. And uh, today will be no different. We're going to sort of set up camp in just a couple of verses because what happens here with the Lord Jesus is too important and, and in many ways similar to other times in his life where he broke out in prayer in front of the disciples and he would make statements about his uh, understanding of salvation and the work of redemption in ways that were quite frankly mysterious, cause us to be arrested in our attention, to sort of pause for a moment and, and get over the initial... Uh, Uh, shock and mystery of it, and then begin to think about it and ponder it as to its implications for God's people. And that's what you have here when he had sent some disciples out, and they came back, and they were very, very excited about the ministry that they were having. And you can imagine, as we saw several weeks ago, they had come back, and, and the gospel was was having its impact in very pagan villages places where you would never expect the gospel to have any root, where you'd never expect to see someone come to Christ. They should have known better because God is a merciful God. All the way back in the Old Testament, he'd saved people no one expected him to save. Even prophets like Jonah knew that God was a merciful God and would save people to whom he was sent, causing him at one point to be very reluctant to go to the people of Nineveh. God, he said, was merciful and compassionate, and he knew it. And he just didn't like the Ninevites. He was prejudiced. He hated them. In the pagan villages on the eastern side of the Jordan, you see all kinds of pagan places where the Lord on the way to the cross wants to stop and bring grace. And so he sends the 70 out. And when they came back, they were so excited. They, they, they saw the powers of darkness fleeing. They saw people opening up their hearts to the truth. They, in just a, a brief opening to their gospel ministry, they... They were stunned and very excited and rejoiced. The problem was, of course, you remember, they saw things horizontally rather than vertically. They didn't think ultimately about what God was doing as much as they thought about maybe perhaps their place in it. Or they were in danger of becoming distracted and seeing themselves as 
important or indispensable to the task. And so Jesus had to warn them. And he said in verse 20, look, do not rejoice merely or perhaps even at all that the spirits are subject to you. Stop looking at this horizontally and look at this vertically. What about souls? What you ought to rejoice over is not so much how God may use you from here until the time he arrives. What you ought to rejoice over is that your names are there because when you arrive, it's going to be absolutely eternal critical that you have been chosen, that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that you are his child. That's what matters most. Souls. We get confused over that. You know, even if you've been in Christ just a short time, you... You can already see the tension building in your life because you have your society and your jobs and your community. You have other responsibilities and your family and your kids and college and education and, and friendships and fellowship and vacations and all the things you want to do in your quote-unquote bucket list. You have all those things and you feel the tension because over and over again in Scripture, it's all about what God is doing on the vertical level that's utterly important, that's eternal critical. And so we even feel the tension there. How do we take all the things God has involved us in and use them to serve the gospel? Well, the Lord recalibrates our thinking as he does with the disciples and did at that, on that day. And then he becomes the model for the right perspective. You want to know how to think? Think like Jesus. You want to know what to say to God the Father? Say what Jesus says. Pray what he prays. Pray for the outcomes he prays for think about the spiritual realities he's thinking about and let everything else sort of align itself with it. Let everything else be a channel, a fuel on your way to what really matters. And we saw last time that's what Jesus did. He, he had uh, seen them come back with great euphoria about their ministry and then he qu questioned their motives. He, he recalibrated their motives. He caused them to examine their motives and then in a moment of spontaneous worship, praise, in other words, the humanity of Jesus coming before his Father and praying before his fellow disciples, he says things before his Father that are absolutely stunning and he becomes an example of what we really ought to be, what we really ought to be doing. He openly confesses certain things about his Father's works in redemption that we ought to openly confess and he does it for the right reasons. He wants the honor and the glory of his Father the way we should want to honor our Heavenly Father. When God does something providentially or circumstantially, it ought not to preclude this kind of excitement. Whatever it may be, difficulty, hardening, softening, someone rejecting the gospel, someone accepting the gospel, we may grieve in our hearts, but ultimately, in the end, our purposes, our will ought to align with the Father's. Whatever God's doing, He's to be confessed as honorable. Whatever God's doing, He's to be confessed as righteous. Whatever God's doing, He's to be vindicated. He's to be called out as just. We ought to vindicate whatever God's doing even if it means to our own harm or our own shame. To vindicate the honor of the Father, to vindicate the honor of God, even when we confess our sins or when we're praising Him for some work that He's done or some providential circumstance that He's unfolded. Even when souls harden against Him. 
to question the purposes of God, to put God on trial, to try to fit God into some framework of humanity and human thinking, Jesus demonstrates here that is not honoring to Him at all. We honor Him when we confess to His honor the real truth about what He's doing and the real truth about His sovereign right to do it. And so you remember last time, Jesus rejoiced greatly. He spontaneously broke forth in this great confession and said, I confess to your honor, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these salvation truths from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants, those who are brought low, the humble, the unspoiled, those who don't see themselves as anything. We're all unbelievers. We're all under His wrath. Everyone seeks his own self. But some through life just pour gasoline on their self-righteousness. And they harden against truth. Life doesn't teach them the lessons it's supposed to teach them. Life doesn't seem to soften them. Consequences of life don't seem to soften them. In fact, they question God. They raise up lofty ideas against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We're warned not to do that. They... They imagine God a certain way and, and if He doesn't meet their expectations, they, they refuse Him on that basis. They've set the standard. They've become judge and jury and then they set God aside because of it. This is the wise and intelligent that God hides the truth from because life should humble you. Life should teach you. Life should tell you there is a God. You will answer to Him and after all, doesn't everything slip through your fingers like sand? Does anything really satisfy Shouldn't you consult your God? Should not a people consult their God? Isaiah said, yes. But some, oh, they get up every day, they look in the mirror and they say, wow, it happened again. I got better looking and even smarter. <laughs> wow, I'm somebody. And notice, he hides the truth from the proud He's opposed to the proud. And we saw last time he pours grace out upon the person who sees himself as nothing. Life is, heart, is softening them. Life is teaching them lessons. Life is wearing them out. They are beginning to realize by the sovereign grace of God that they themselves are nothing before him. Argue if you want, but God hides the truth from the arguer from the disputer. He hides it. What's sad is that you will love your arguments. That is the essential judgment. He will give you to your arguments so that you love them unto your ruin. But the person that is softening in the grace of God, the person that is starting to see, you know what, I've tried. I've gone after this, I've gone after that, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've argued this, I've argued that. There's nothing there, it's all empty. This is the person that God loves to reveal the truth to because he is sending circumstances and he's softening and he's pouring out favor upon those circumstances so that they might soften you and bring you to the place where you're brought low. And then Jesus says, that's how God works, and it's his flawless pleasure to do it like that. It's his flawless pleasure to do it in ways that we don't expect. 
It's his flawless pleasure to do it and call you not to question it because it's always right, it's always good, it's always best, and it will always accomplish the ultimate glory. It can be no less. And he loves it when his people rejoice over such things because Jesus rejoiced over such things. He confessed them to the honor of his God. And he also does something else here. He declares something. It is indeed a confession, but it's basically a, an expression of the lordship of his own redeem, redeeming work. But in his expression of it in verse 22, he makes some amazing assertions that really produce tension in us as we, as we come to this declaration of his lordship. It may unsettle you, but here it is, straightforward. And right in front of the disciples, Jesus says in verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, that's uncomfortable. It's a celebration in the heart of Jesus to say it. It's uncomfortable for us because we're humans and finite and limited and we don't understand and there's, there are aspects of this that the Christian rejoices over and yet still there's shadows and it's murky and there are some tensions in the statements of Jesus like the one here there are some lines of that tension that cannot be crossed and will not be crossed until we know the Lord personally in glory. But here it is given to us unapologetically, straightforward. And some things are said here about the, the work of redemption that have implications for God's people, comforting and unsettling implications. Deeply comforting though. The first thing you notice in verse 22 is that this has been done by my Father, Jesus says. Whatever this thing is that Jesus mentions in verse 22, it comes from the Father. So we could say it this way. This plan to redeem, this plan to draw the line in the sand, this plan to save came from the Father exclusively. He's the ultimate source. Therefore, you can't question it because he's the highest authority He's the origin of grace. Grace would never come without God because grace is his nature. And without God's grace coming from his nature revealed to humankind, there would be no expression of grace. There would be no knowledge of it, no revelation of it. You wouldn't know what grace is. You wouldn't know how to express it as a human being, let alone a fallen human being. You wouldn't know the preciousness of grace, the sweetness of grace. The fact that you could be judged, should be judged, and grace reaches out and favors regardless of whether or not you're worthy of the opposite. Grace reaches out in favor. We wouldn't know it. We wouldn't know what it was like. His nature is grace. And if he devised a plan to express his nature in all of its love and grace and mercy, then he can do that. He's the author of redemption. It comes from him. It's handed from him to his son. And so the way we ought to think about it, just sort of going back before time began, is think about it like this. Before anything was created, as I said to you last time, 
the Father planned to create man in his image. And the triune God is perfectly aligned with the will of one another. The Father, of course, being the one in the Trinity mentioned here as the one to whom the Son responds. God purposed to reveal himself to a fallen man and to manifest his love and mercy and grace as infinite and, and eternal. And God was the one who devised the plan for the second member of the Trinity to enter into humanity and become one of them in order to solve their problem and to be crushed by the weight of the Father's wrath against fallen humanity's sin. It was God that devised the plan and the plan came from Him. He devised it so that He could manifest His glory. He didn't do it because He ultimately pitied you, though He did. He didn't do it because you were somehow worthy. You know, sometimes people say, you know, God showed how valuable you were by stretching out his hands on the cross and saying this much. You were this valuable. Listen, God's love cannot be fit into a box that has anything to do with man's value. God loves for his own name's sake. God loves for his own glory's sake. God loves because he is love. He is saving love. The very fact that we were not worthy of it makes his love revealed as it should be. The very fact that we weren't worthy of it. We're not to be esteemed, but only judged. That's what makes his love so great. Why does he do it? Because he wants to display that to his people for all eternity. And in displaying it, it is for one reason, he says, for his own name's sake. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it that I, not, and that I might not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I won't give it to another. Look, I want my glory to shine, and I want it to shine in the most maximum way at the, at the lim outer limits of how it can be displayed. And in order to do that, I'm going to show you love, grace, and mercy. And the way to do that is I'm going to take a people who don't deserve love, grace, and mercy, and I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to give it to them precisely because I want to display my name to them and my name is a kind of love and grace and mercy they would never know otherwise. Even God elected his people for the praise of his name. Ephesians 1, 4-6. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. You say, ah, there's his reason that we might be holy and blameless. No. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will for one purpose, the praise of the glory of his grace. God created us for his glory Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. If you're in Christ today, you were created for his glory. If you're not in Christ today, you need to repent of your sins so that you might know him intimately. And if you die in your sins without Christ, you are created so that he might get glory from judgment. Everything works for the magnification of God's perfections, everything. And it is not to be trifled with. 
God destroyed Pharaoh in Egypt to the display of his glory. Exodus 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. (laughs) And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. That's right. He raises up individuals and in their sin they run headlong toward ruin and God leaves them in their ruin, restrains his grace from them so that they might magnify his purposes and therefore his glory. Jesus loved the glory of his Father. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, Jesus said in John 7, 18. And you seek your own glory, men seeking their own glory, men and women running around trying to puff each other up all your life, trying to get a little bit of the slice of earthly glory from those around you. Jesus says the one who seeks the glory of him who sent Christ is true. Everything else is false glory, cheap glory, goes nowhere. It's horizontal. It does nothing. Everything is for His namesake. Sufferings of Christ were for His glory. Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name God forgives sin for his name's sake. John 17, the hour has come. Glorify your son that I may glorify you. In what sense? That I may give them eternal life. How are you going to give them eternal life? You're going to have to forgive their sin. Isaiah 43, 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I don't do it for you. I don't do it to make your life easier. I don't ultimately do it because somehow there was something in you that compelled me. I do it to put my own name on display. Listen, if, if God puts his own glory and his own name on display in its maximum expression, his creation is most blessed. Most blessed. I love the fact that Jesus prayed, Father, I want him to come and see my glory. So back to our text It comes from the Father, and notice there's an intimacy here. It's been handed over to me, Jesus said. Whatever these all things are, they've been handed over to me. This introduces what Jesus talks about in the next phrase. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. There is this perfect familial love between the members of the Godhead and in particularly mentioned here, the Father and the Son. You say, why express it like that in Scripture when God certainly doesn't have to reduce himself to our concepts? No, listen, being made in the image of God, family relationships are but a glimpse They're a mere reflection, and it's murky and tainted with sin. It's a shadow, yet it is still a glimpse. Man, I love my kids. I love my children. As a father to his children, I love them. And 
your children, the ones in your family, biological or adopted, they're yours. There's an intimate connection there. When you get in a room, everyone else is on the outside of that intimate connection. Your family members are family. You know them. They know you. There's an intimacy. The more time you spend together in that relationship which has been given by God in that family unit, you get a glimpse of the intimate connection that's there. You know each other's facial expressions. You start to learn each other's body language. There's, there's certain inflections you know there's a tenderness that's so freeing. You walk into your parents' house even after you've been gone for 20 years, you go right to the refrigerator. You don't even question it. That's mom and dad. I'm at home. They might have moved 10 times. I'm at home. This is their house. This is their home. These are my parents. I'm their child. Now listen, beloved, that is, that is a mere fractional glimpse of what Jesus says in John 5 verse 20 for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all the things that He Himself is doing. Isn't that incredible? The Father loves His Son and He he discloses everything to the Son, loves the Son, He's going to tell Him everything. It's going to be intimate. It's, It's this reciprocal expression between the Father and the Son It results in full disclosure, every detail. Remember I read earlier, John 14, verse 31, that the world may know that I love the Father. There it is. The Father loves the Son, shows Him all that He's doing, and the world needs to know that Jesus loves His Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Listen, when Jesus did everything His Father was showing Him, it it demonstrated His intimate love with His Father. He was in lockstep. He loved it. He rejoiced in it. It was His favorite thing to be in intimate communion with His Father. Sometimes you wonder, how could He go away and pray all night? Listen, that was His most exciting moment. An all-night time away from the crowds and the horizontal. You say, well, doesn't he want to serve people and do ministry? Of course, but there's nothing more favorite to the Son than to get away and just speak these kinds of things to his Father. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the proud and you've revealed them to the humble and all things have been handed over to me by you. No one knows me except you and no one knows you except me and I'm doing your will and your work and you're telling me everything you want me to do and I'm happy to do it. And the Father's thrilled that the Son is doing it because they have this connection that is just profound. And so the Son is unfolding the Father's will, His plan, His purposes, His heart, His emotions, His affections, His thoughts. See, what's the implication for us? Think about it this way. Salvation then is not first grounded in God's love for us, but it's grounded in His love for His Son. Salvation doesn't depend upon whether or not you needed it. Salvation doesn't depend upon whether I can grab it, hold it, and keep it. Salvation doesn't depend upon any of that. Salvation is is from the Father to the Son because they have a reciprocal love relationship that is inseparable and they love to work together. They love to be one because they are one in essence. It just flows from them. And so Jesus says, it's all been handed over to me by my Father. So in that sense, there's perfect familial love. And by the way, as a footnote, 
As a, as a side note, if someone comes to you and says, well, I don't think Jesus was God. He's just a man. Here's proof that's absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. You say, how so? If Jesus was not God and just a man, the Father wouldn't hand all things over to a mere mortal. Because it can't be handed over to a mere mortal. It can't be. He has to be perfect. And to be perfect, he had to be God. All mortals are sinful. All mortals are born sinful. There's no way he could hand over all things in the universe to a mere mortal because a mere mortal would take it and for his own exaltation destroy it as we saw in the garden and since. But if someone comes along and says to you, well, I think he was God, but I don't think he was an actual man. I think he just appeared as a human. I don't think he was an actual man. Here's proof that that's impossible. If Jesus was only God and not truly man at all, then he couldn't receive from someone else what he already has. If he was only God and not a man, what would he be receiving? He, he has it. He owns it. It's all his. He has to be the God-man. He has to be one who is God incarnate on the earth, receiving from the Father all that the Father has given and devised to bring it about in this love relationship they have. And he personalized it. All things have been handed over to me. That is to say, I have the premier saving role. I'm the sole recipient. So here it is, beloved. In a single phrase, Jesus intimates that this perfect love between he and his Father, he gives proof that he truly is God in human flesh and he's the sole name, he's the sole person, the sole path, the only Savior through which we are redeemed. You want to try to deal with God on some other terms than Jesus? It's not going to work. The Father handed it over to him. It's a passive verb. The Father handed all things over to Jesus. And now you know the eternal scope of it, all things. All things what? All things that were revealed about redemption in the Messiah, the one who would come, the one who did come, the one who died, who rose and who was exalted, that one. All things have been handed to him with respect to making redemption come to fruition. <laughs> you got to come through Jesus. There's no way to come any other way. And by the way, you can't make up a Jesus of your own making. He, you don't come on his terms and devise a different savior. You come on his terms alone. You don't come on your own terms. It's always on his terms. I always think about the fact that when you breathe your last, you can immediately enter into the presence of the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Matthew 28, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Authority. So that means on that day, in that moment, there will be no higher appeal. None. And the Father loves the Son, John 3.35, and has given all things into His hand. That is to say, that's language. That is to say, it's in His hand to do with as He pleases. So you're going to deal with the Son as the ultimate authority, no higher appeal, and you're going to deal with the Son's will, whatever He has chosen to do. 
And it will include a final verdict because John 5.22 says the Father has given all judgment to the Son. You're going to have to deal with His final verdict. You say, well, maybe I'll be the one He'll forget about. John 17.2, all souls are under His authority. All souls. And John 5 says that when He speaks... There is a day coming when he speaks, all the graves will be open and all souls will come before him. There you'll be by yourself facing off with the Lord of glory himself, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, where you stand with him, whether you believed in him, whether you believed in yourself, whether you went after whatever it is you thought was important in life, whatever you thought horizontally could be achieved in life, whatever you raised up against the knowledge of God in terms of lofty thoughts, whatever you came up with in terms of a savior, whatever you devised for your life and your fulfillment and your happiness, you will be standing before the Lord of glory on that day. And the next statement is just absolutely stunning. No one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son. Look, that means unless He reveals Himself to you, unless He softens your heart, Every soul is shut out. If he redeems no one, it is part and parcel to who he is as the son who has a relationship of knowledge and revelation with the father and as the father has a, has a relationship of intimate knowledge and revelation with his son. Everyone else, as one commentator said, is shut out. If he redeems no one, you're shut out, I'm shut out, we're all shut out, that's it, it's over. You will always have the blinders on. You will never see it. You will be left to love what will ruin you. We will be completely out. And we will face the judge on that day with no hope. Because you have to be perfect on that day. You have to be absolutely perfect and absolutely holy to stand in God's presence. No one can see God and live. You say, well, I'm not absolutely perfect and holy. That's why you need a covering. An advocate, a righteous one whose righteousness covers you by faith. Say, how does anybody get redeemed? Notice the last line in verse 22. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. (laughs) I love that line. Man, if it ended before that line, your heart stops. But here, the Son does will to reveal the Father to human beings. He wills it. He loves it. How does he do it? He wants his name preached and he wants men called to repentance and he uses life and circumstances to soften and humble and crush pride and he brings you to the place where you're pliable and the soil is soft and it becomes good soil. That's how he does it. But make no mistake, it is his sovereign will. It's foolish to say, well, maybe God hasn't willed for me to come. That's foolish. If you want to come to Jesus Christ, He will not cast you out. The Scriptures are clear. You don't know whom God is willing to come or not. But if you're hearing the truth, He's certainly gracious. He's certainly patient. He's certainly softening. He's certainly giving you truth. All you must do is repent and believe. Of course, God is the one who grants all of that. He doesn't tell us to draw a sharp line between those two. He just calls you to believe. 
calls you to turn from yourself and repent and believe. Nothing's holding you back from doing that. If you want Christ, you can't be held back from Christ. You can't. People who are not in the purposes of God, redeemed, do not want Christ, never want Christ. Just like any of us know who, before Christ, didn't want Him <laughs> until we were brought to want Him by His sovereign purposes. We will talk more about that next week. What's the net effect? Oh, I love it. If the Son works on your heart, if He puts together the circumstances to bring you low, if you're humbled and pliable, if you come to the place where you repent and believe, if you want Christ, if you're drawn to Christ, and you repent and believe in Him and come to know Jesus Christ, then it is absolutely marvelous what happens to you. We'll close with the 16th chapter of John's Gospel. Our time is gone, but look here. This is, this is the net effect the intimate relationship between the Father and Son has an impact on you when you come to Christ. He was talking to the disciples and the new covenant. In verse 23, he says, in that day you'll not question me about anything. I mean, they were sitting around asking Jesus about all kinds of things and he was there to talk to his disciples. But he said, in that day, in other words, the day of the new covenant, the day of the ratification of the new covenant, after the cross, resurrection, exaltation, the time of grace, in that day, you'll not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it. You can go right to the Father. Verse 25, these things I've spoken to you in a parable, parabolic language, a proverb, in other words. It's sort of cloudy. It's a proverb. It's a general truism. I've spoken to you generally, but an hour is coming when I'm not going to speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you're going to ask in my name. I do not say that to you that I'll request of the Father on your behalf. Look at this. For the Father himself loves you. Man, I, that is such a marvelous reality. When I came to Christ, suddenly the Father took up residence within me by his Spirit. I have the Father's love because the Son has his love. The Father loves me. I can't go... Uh, a fraction of a moment outside of his love or his care, of his gaze, his watch, of his guidance, his leadership, even when I'm resisting it, even when I'm in sin, even when I don't want to hear from God, even when I'm, I'm in a season of darkness in my heart and doubt, God's love is lavished upon me in all those times as my loving Father I'm never separated from his love. I cannot be because he loves the son and he loves me in his son. I am completely swept up in this great love relationship between he and his son. And so if I'm in Christ, I go right to the Father through my Savior. Direct access by faith through the Savior, through his work. He's opened the door. He's given me access. And I go right to the Father and I request things of God through my Savior Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. How do I know it's, it's true? How do I know that I'm cared for? Because the Father himself loves you, Jesus said. 
Why? Because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Look, no one has seen God at any time. Only Jesus Christ can explain him, John 1.18. Even Solomon admitted that, Ecclesiastes 3.11. No one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You can't figure God out on your own. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, your thoughts, Isaiah 55.9. Who has known the mind of the Lord, Romans 11.34. But Jesus says, in that day, it's going to be open to you. It's going to be plain to you. Jeremiah 31, 34, in the new covenant, no more shall any man teach his neighbor and say to his brother, know the Lord. He doesn't mean we don't need teachers between now and the time we see Christ. What he means is, I, I'm not going to come up to you and say, hey, let me open your eyes to see Christ. You're going to say, oh, I already know him. I know him intimately. I love him. And he's produced love in me and his spirit opens his word to me and we will sit together and and know full well that our iniquity is forgiven. Personal attention from God. The Father himself loves you. Personal intimacy. You remember back in chapter 14 that I read earlier, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and I'll disclose myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. There it is. There's this intimate access, this intimate fellowship and protection and leadership and guidance. I wake up every day in the confidence of that. Who brought that about? It came from the Father as, as a redemptive plan. He revealed it to the Son. The Son carried it out and the Son gives it to you and I, whomever He wills. No wonder then, as the disciples are listening to this, no wonder that Jesus says, oh, blessed are your eyes and your ears. Blessed. What a happy day that my eyes were opened because without it, I'm lost. What a happy day that I was crushed in my pride and saw it. What a happy day that I was brought to the end of myself. What a happy day that somebody told me, you're not a Christian, you're a phony. What a happy day that my sin found me out. What a happy day that my guilt was relentless. What a happy day that life slipped through my fingers, there was no happiness or satisfaction. What a gracious thing because the Lord was willing it. He was willing for me to see that. Man, if you're here today and you think you can grab gusto from all that, it will end up empty. The only, the only turning point and hinge is at the end of it, when you find it all empty, will your heart be soft and pliable or you, will you reach for another cheap Savior in yourself and die in your sins? Or you reach for Christ. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, the hymn writer said. That's where I rest my soul. In the sovereign lordship of Christ that comes only through the Son. Blessed are you, he said. For you heard these things. You've known these things.
We're going to have to finish up that statement and, and the rest of that and next time. So, beloved, if you're here today, you know the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Your eyes and ears are just amazingly, mercifully blessed. And if you are here today and you have not known it, you're chasing nonsense. Just stop. Just get out a piece of paper and write down, if you can, even one full and complete thing in life that has satisfied you. Just one. Name it. Name the one thing that has brought you complete and utter fulfillment for your anxious soul and conscience. Name it. In all the cheap thrills you enjoy. And then ask God, Lord, is it true that this is all ridiculous nonsense? And is it true that if I lost my last breath in this very hour, I would have no hope? It's true. The Bible says so. Maybe you don't believe it. I pray that God has mercy on you. Let's bow together. Lord, we can hardly imagine that you have loved us like this, that you willed to reveal your truth to anyone. We can hardly imagine such love and mercy. And people reject it because they chalk it up to a crutch or some religious ideal. And they will find one day before you that they're blind. And it will shock them. But Lord, you're a loving God and you, you've written names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Lord, may that ink be indelible for those who hear the truth here today. May they be your people. Save them. May they turn from their sin and their foolishness. And thank you, Lord, that those of us who know you are evidence of this great love. And then the amazing truth that we're under your care in such a way that cannot be lost. We're under your love every day in a way that cannot be lost. This is staggering that no matter what circumstance you bring about, it is parental love that does it. It is the joy of your kindness in our life to produce more of the manifestation of your power and glory. And one day we will see how all of it works together to form this great tapestry of your love. Humble us under these truths modeled by our Savior. May we align with them, we pray in his name. Amen.